you have your Bibles, open to Revelation chapter 6. If you're new or you're here for the first time, and I don't say this enough, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We hope you make this your home church. We are in a study Sunday mornings of the book of Revelation. If you haven't been here in a while and this is your church, welcome back. If you've been suffering for Jesus down at the beach, welcome back. We are in a study of the book of Revelation, and uh, we teach through the scriptures. And when we started Revelation, we said this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read, hear, and keep the words of the prophecy. So every week we're looking for the blessing God would bestow upon us. And there's a divine outline to this book. Chapter 1, John, who's the last writer of the Old Testament, he writes the last book of the Old Testament, He's the same writer who gave us John 3.16, God so loved the world, sent his only begotten son, whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. One of the great scriptures uh, in all the Bible. It's the same writer, he's 90 years old. And he writes the book of Revelation and he's told to write the things he has seen, which is this unveiling of Jesus Christ. Not the carpenter from Nazareth, not the rabbi of Galilee that John handled and touched and seen and heard. This is now the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. This is the Alpha and the Omega. John is startled at what he's seeing. And then he's told to write the things that are, the seven literal churches in the book of Revelation in Asia Minor. And now where we're going, Revelation 6, on the things that will shortly come to pass. This is the future of our world, the future of planet Earth that will all lead to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, if you had asked most people through history when they thought the world would end, they would have looked at you quizzically. It would have been a strange question they didn't understand. Because for them, life would have no end, right? There was seed time and harvest. There was ancestors. And life would just go on, right? The great circle of life that we were introduced to in Lion King is what most people believed, that the wheel of life was going around the hub of death and that life would just continue on and on. Why would it not? What they believed was close to what Peter said skeptics would say about our belief of Christ's coming uh, in the future, where they said, where is the promise of his king coming? It's been 2,000 years. You guys got to get your head out of the sand. You know, we're enlightened now. We understand better things. Jesus isn't coming. All things continue as they were from the beginning of time since the fathers fell asleep. In other words, there are natural laws of nature in motion and these things will just keep going on and on and on. Now, there was a group of people who thought differently. They were the Hebrew people, mainly because they had the scriptures. They had Moses and the prophets written by the finger of God. Their scriptures told them that there was a definitive beginning to this world, and there would be a definitive end. Now, the beginning is very clear. It's in Genesis, right? Six days God creates the world. He rests on the seventh. Uh, I'm a six-day creationist. I know there's other views. When Moses was handed the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments was keep holy the Sabbath. Why? God said, because I created the world in six days, and on the seventh day I rested. And so we have a definitive beginning there. And then in the Old Testament, they didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have any of Jesus' teachings. But they knew there would be an end. The idea of heaven and hell was murky to them. If there's anything they understood, they understood there would be an end to this present age. Now, all the prophets wrote about this. I'm going to read you Daniel 12, verse 1, where it says, At that time, this would be that day, 
Michael, he's an archangel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, of tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation. Now he's speaking of the nation of Israel. Even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, we'll look at that next week, or in a few weeks in Revelation, the 144,000, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, now here it is, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro. I've been traveling for 10 days. People are running to and fro like crazy, and there's TSA agents to prove it, believe me. And knowledge, knowledge will increase. Either knowledge of prophecy, which, again, is blossoming in our day. There's more taught on the end of the world in the last 50 years than 1,500 years of the church, or general knowledge would increase, which I believe both are true. Now, to understand this idea of a last day, how, how it permeated Jewish thought, remember when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead? It's one of the most common stories in all the Bible, John 11. Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus has died. He purposely waits. He tells the disciples it's good for them. Because he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's a type of his resurrection. And so he waits, and he comes to Bethany and Martha. Remember Martha? She's the cook in the kitchen, the complainer. Well, she, she has the initiative. She's a type A personality. She runs out and says, Lord, had you been here, my brother would have never died. Now, parenthetically, let me just say something about Martha. Martha reveals to us that we all have our doubts. I don't know why Christians try and hide this. I think we're afraid to voice it to other people. As long as we're in this body with a finite mind in a fallen world, we will have doubts about certain things. And we shouldn't be afraid to voice those doubts. And so she comes and she says, Lord, I understand your love, your grace, your sovereignty, and it does not connect with my brother dying at this young age. She voices her doubts, and we should too. Now, my thing is you should starve your doubts and feed your faith. Feed your faith and starve your doubts. And bring your questions to God. Look what she says. Lord, that's how she starts it. Lord, had you been here, my brother would have never died. I don't understand this, but you're still Lord. It's kind of like what Job said, though you slay me, I'll still serve you. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus answers her and says, your brother will rise again. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead in a couple minutes, right? But she never read John 11. That's the problem. Our problem is we've never read the rest of our story. Listen to her answer. I know he will rise in the resurrection of the last day. She understood from Daniel in the Old Testament there would be an end time resurrection. Jesus talked about sheep and goats, wheat and tares, the final day. It was ve very well understood. One day Jesus took his men, the twelve, to the Mount of Olives. Have you ever been there? It's a beautiful sight. The temple once stood there, one of the wonders of the world. These proud Jewish boys said, Jesus, look at the stones of this temple. Look at the gold shimmering in the sun. 
And Jesus said, there's coming a day where this temple will be destroyed. Now, they were aghast at this. It was the center of their religion. And they asked him three questions. What will be, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? He had told them he would go away and come again. And, listen to this, the end of the age. See, that was well established. There would be an end to life on this planet. Now, Jesus went on to tell them that he would prepare a place for them, that he would come again. John writes the Revelation. So not only do Jewish people have this worldview of an end, now Christians take it forward, and it's been 2,000 years. However, for the first time in human history, secular people are starting to talk about an end. Secular people are starting to grasp maybe life on this planet will not go on and on and on. Stephen Hawking, the brilliant cosmologist, physicist, one of the smartest men who has ever lived, two days before he died, you could Google this, talked about the end of the world. He believed it would come in the form of our artificial intelligence and eventually us using nuclear weapons. Remember, man has never built a weapon he has not used. Jeff Nesbitt has written a new book called This is the Way the World Ends. This is not out of the mainstream. This is right in Barnes & Noble. Droughts, die-offs, heat waves, hurricanes are all converging on America. Now, when people started to talk about climate change 25 years ago, we thought they were extremists. We thought they were left. We thought they were nuts, right? And some of the people that were the proponents of it uh, really looked like they were nuts. But now everybody's starting to grasp something's wrong, right? We politicized this. We argued over it. Here's what nobody talks about. America has been living far different than anyone on the face of this planet. The way we live is unsustainable. Here's, here's why it's worked. We're the only ones that ever lived like this. But now everybody's looking at us saying, we want a piece of the pie. We want to live like this. Thomas Friedman's a futurist. He wrote The Earth is Flat, and then he wrote a book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. Well, I saw him at the Kimmel Center years ago and he talked about how he went to Shanghai in the early 1990s. He hadn't been there for a while. He got there at night. He went to his hotel room. He woke up in the morning. He opened up his window, and he told his counterparts there, you, built, you just built Manhattan. And then he came back five years later and said, you built another Manhattan. See, the rest of the world's catching up. We're going to produce more cars on this planet by 2030 than we've produced since we've been building cars. See, people want a piece of the wealth. They want to live like we've been living, and it's not sustainable. Nesbitt in his book lists some of the problems we're facing. I just want to highlight one, because we don't think about this. Uh, our fossil fuels produce carbon, right? It goes into the air. It gives us greenhouse gases, rises the temperature of the earth. Now, the good thing is some of this falls on land, and plants and human beings and the earth take in a lot of it. What we didn't realize is a lot of this is going into the ocean, which we once thought was good, now it's turned bad. We're dumping 22 million tons of carbon per day into the ocean. That's 525 billion since the Industrial Revolution began. Today, in 2018, our oceans are 30% more acidic than they've ever been. You're like, big deal, what does that mean? Well, it is a big deal. Three-fourths of the earth is covered by water. It's why we're seeing coral reefs and islands disappear, die off of shellfish. Scientists are struggling to catch up. They are alarmed 
at what could, this could do in the long haul. Now, years ago when you talked about this stuff, you had to do research. Now it just comes to you. Just pick magazines up, pick books up. It's all out there. This is Time Magazine a few weeks ago. Climate catastrophe just 12 years away. Climate scientists have understood for decades that unchecked man-made global warming will wreak havoc on human civilization. Now a landmark UN report released on October 8th rings what scientists hope is a forceful enough alarm to wake the world up. Even the glimmer of light it offers that we already know how to address climate change and stave off some of its worst effects bears a bitter shadow in the finding that political leaders are nowhere close to fully understanding the necessary steps. Scientists on the Nobel Prize winning International Government Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, point to a global temperature rise of 1.5 Celsius as a threshold the planet cannot cross without seeing some of the worst effects of climate change, the destruction of ecosystems, disappearance of island nations, unpredictable weather changes. Um, yet according to UN organization's latest report, temperatures have already risen one degree Celsius as a result of human activity, and the planet could pass the 1.5 threshold as early as 2030. Now, I'm here to tell you biblically this is not going to bring an end to our planet, okay? Some people read into this and they say, well, they're talking about oceans here, and later in Revelation, we're going to see a third of the waters are polluted, and we're seeing, you know, all these climate effects. No, no. What we're looking at in the book of Revelation is not the work of man. It is the work of God. It's similar to when God judged Egypt. He turned the Nile to blood, and I'm sure in that day, and we've seen it in movies, they had a common reason for that, right? And then God made darkness come upon the earth, and they had a reason for that, but God was systematically stepping into human history, judging Egypt for what they had done. The Bible tells us that this time period will be the judgment of God on the earth. Now, here's what you need to understand. Judgment is something God must do. Please hear me. It's not what he longs to do. Does everybody get that? It's not what he longs to do. I quoted you John 3, 16. You know what the next verse 17 says? God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And you and I have been living in 2,000 years of grace where God's been knocking on the door of hearts, and, and many of you here opened the door of your heart, and he came in, and we found salvation. That's what God longs to do. The reason why there's been this long time period, it's not God's will that any should perish, but all will come to eternal life. But what we're looking at here is a certain judgment. And in Revelation chapter 6, John, who is in heaven, sees the throne of God. He sees this worshiping community, and now John is stunned in chapter 6, in verse 1, when he said, I saw the Lamb, and he opened one of the seals. This is the title deed of the earth. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, like thunder, James Earl Jones, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, 
And it was granted to the one who sat on him to take peace from the earth. And the people should kill one another, and there was given to him a sword. Verse 5, when I opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come and see, and I looked, and a black horse, scales in his hand. And the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. And the fourth seal I heard the voice saying, Come and see, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death and hell that followed him, and the power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and the beast of the earth. Now, you may have heard of these, the four men or the four riders of the apocalypse. It's been all throughout pop literature. We've heard so much about them. I want to focus on the white horse and its rider. It's very important this morning. Uh, to understand a little of the backstory, in the Roman world, and Rome conquered the world basically, when a Roman general would conquer another nation state or a country, he would be given a triumph in Rome. A triumph was like a ticker tape parade, right? Manhattan, you know, this wonderful celebration. Well, back then he would sit on a white horse in regal attire, military attire, and he would ride into Rome as people cheered and clapped because he had conquered another nation. And by the way, that's how they built Rome, on the spoils of other nations. So we look at this white horse rider. He goes out conquering the conquering. And right away we say, this is Jesus Christ, right? He's the one who's going out to conquer and the one to conquer. Now, chapter 19, we do see Jesus on a white horse. However, it says on his thigh, it says, Lord of lords, king of kings, his vesture is dipped in blood. That's why he's the one able to take the scroll, he who died for us and was sinless. And out of his mouth proceeds the word of God. When we look at this white horse rider in the first two verses, he goes out to conquer, but he has a bow and no arrows. Very interesting. Um, it's a sign he has no authority, no title deed. He has a crown. In the Greek, it's not the diadem. It's not the royal crown. It's the Stephanos crown, the laurel crown that fades away. This white horse rider is a usurper. He's antichrist. Now, I know what happens when you hear antichrist. You hear, ooh, like man in a black cape, horror movies, the antichrist, you know, Damien, 666 and his scalp. You think all these crazy things, right? The word anti means against. It can mean in place of. So Antarctica, right? When they discovered the Arctic, it was called the Arctic, which actually means bear, which is a constellation. And then when they found the other pole, they called it Antarctica. It was the opposite. It was on the other pole. That's what it means. So the Antichrist will be opposite of Christ, but he'll be in place of Christ. He looks just like Christ. The world will finally have its Messiah. In Matthew 24, the aforementioned Jesus sermon, when he talked about the end of the age, he told the disciples, take heed no one deceives you, for many false Christs and many false prophets will arise. The day we're talking about is not one day. The word yom in Hebrew is used over 500 times. It always means a 24-hour day. The only time it doesn't mean a 24-hour day is when it talks about this day, which is the day of the Lord, a seven-year time period. It begins with world peace, an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity and innovation. Now, this is a stark contrast to what I was taught when I became a Christian and maybe what you've heard. 
When I became a Christian in 1983, I heard Jesus is coming, the world's going to end because we're going to get nuked by the Soviets and drug proliferation, and then it was AIDS, and then the coming economic meltdown, right? And they wrote those books for 20 years, and then we did have an economic meltdown. And you can just keep writing those books. It's going to happen one time or another. But people put this whole doom and gloom scenario together and said, Jesus is coming. And then you read your Bible. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians that when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes. Because Jesus will come as a thief in the night. And then you read Jesus saying it'll be like the days of Noah where they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving the marriage, i.e. the last thing anybody ever thought could happen was judgment. And all of a sudden you begin to understand that what the white horse rider symbolizes is a worldwide deception that will come in the form politically, economically, environmentally, all under the guise of a one world leader. And you think, well, how could that ever happen? Well, we're seeing pieces of it. But to really push it over the edge, you need a rapture. I think you need hundreds of millions of people missing from all over the planet, missing from government, missing from you know, top echelons of society on every continent and every country in the world. Think about it, 9-11, 3,700 people died, and that ushered in TSA agents and changed the way we live. Can you imagine hundreds of millions of people missing? We'll kick in this final scenario. We're starting to see the beginning of a deception. And I want to show you where the world's going, in my opinion. This doesn't have to be your opinion. That's why you have Bibles on your laps. This is my opinion from what I read that we are headed for a deception and we're seeing the prelude. Let's look at some areas. Let's start with technology. Uh, last week I was at Ravi Zacharias's Founders Week and Ravi interviewed a man I had never heard of called Pat Gelsinger. Pat was from our area up in the Reading community. Uh, when he was 18 years old, he went to California to work for Intel. Anybody who has a laptop, USB, any of that equipment, Pat has been part of your world. He's in the pantheon with jobs and Gates and all of them, leads a company of 23,000 people. They run the cloud. And he became a Christian at 20, wanted to go in full-time ministry. And God said, no, minister where you are. And um, he said he leads his company, 23,000, as though he's pastoring them. And shared some of the great things that were going on in the Bay Area. This past summer, I heard the woman who leads all of Apple's retail. She used to work for Burberry. And how at Apple now, they're beginning all these small Bible studies. And there's kind of a revival in Sil Silicon Valley and in the Bay Area, which was one of the most unchurched areas in America. Really cool to see what God's doing there. So when Ravi was done uh, the interview, and mainly what they talked about was artificial intelligence. And he shared how China is like cashing in, doubling down on this. They've got the people and the money and you know the Chinese, right? If they want to be good in diving, they just dive all day. And so they're going to get into artificial intelligence, and they want to beat everybody there. And Ravi ended the argument by saying, well, what will life look like for the average person in 20 years? Um, Pat said, here's how it's going to look. You're asleep at night. You had an irregular heartbeat. Um, your device, which might not be a phone by then, will uh, pick that up. Uh, make your cardiologist appointment, 
cancel your other appointments, load the cardiologist address into your driverless car, and then you'll wake up in the morning and then follow what has been pre-described for you. It's like, what? <laughs> you gotta be kidding me, right? Although I'm all in the driverless cars, I can't wait if I'm still here. If we're all still here. What about financially? D Dinesh D'Souza wrote a book 15 years ago about the economy, where he thinks it's going. He believes that we're headed for an overclass, which is starting to come true. America created the middle class. Many of those people moved into upper middle class. And now we see maybe an overclass. And again, the rest of the world wants in on this. What about medically? Um, I can't believe I'm gonna say this on record. I believe if Jesus tarries, there will be a cure for cancer, I really do. I think genetically where we're moving and with artificial intelligence and gene research, I think man is gonna crack that code. When it comes to energy, Thomas Friedman says, and again, these guys aren't always right, I'm just quoting what they think. Thomas Friedman said, whatever country discovers the next alternative energy source will become one of the richest countries. Look, look what happened to the Arab world. They were Bedouin nomads and now they're some of the richest people in the world. The real scary thing is artificial intelligence. Again, you don't have the researches, it'll come to you. This is the Atlantic this month. The Pentagon wants to weaponize the brain. What could go wrong? <laughs> Do we have the time to talk about? Anybody see Jason Bourne? Well, there's a lot that could go wrong. The Pentagon's R&D arm, DARPA, gave us drones and the internet. Now the agency has a new mission to fold computers into the brain and nervous system, or maybe vice versa, and Silicon Valley is eating it up. I guess they are. The mission is to make human beings something other than what we are with powers beyond the ones we were born with. Man has been eating of the fruit of the garden since Genesis. The desire to be like God or something greater than God that was in Lucifer and Eve has never died. I always said, if you put me on a desert island, just give me Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that's all I need. I'll take a little bit of 1 Corinthians, a little bit of a gospel and some of Revelation, but I can get by with Genesis 1 to 3. It's never changed. Robert Mueller, who you all know now because he's doing the investigation in the Trump administration and their ties to Russia, you may not know, for 35 years, he was called the philosopher of the United Nations. Uh, he probably knows more about global affairs and what's going on internationally than anybody in our government. This is what Mueller said. He said, there will be no third world war among major powers. He said, instead, we are headed for a new age, a new world, a new genesis, a true global world where there will be God-abiding moral and a spiritual renaissance to make this planet at long last what it was meant to be, the planet of God. This isn't some wacko, this is Robert Mueller. Um, by the way, he's a good Catholic, and uh, I think he's trying to do the right thing. I really do. But can you see where this deception's going? Can you see the people who aren't for this are going to be labeled as? There will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. Man has proven that. When they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes. When the church is removed and we enter this seven-year period, 
a man of peace will arise. Daniel talks about him in chapter 8, verse 25. He'll be a great diplomat, great politician, great communicator. Through his cunning deceptiveness, he shall deceive many and will cause deceit to prosper under his rule and shall exalt himself and he'll speak great and pompous words. He's going to solve all the world problems. He's going to solve all the political conundrums. He's going to solve Jerusalem, which is a cup of trembling. Somehow the Jews are going to build a third temple. How's that going to happen? I have no idea. Is the Vatican going to move there? I have no idea. I'll believe anything at this point. I mean, if Trump could be president, I'll believe anything, right? Nobody could have believed that. You believe anything now, right? He who sits in the heavens, Psalm 2, laughs at man and his connivings because God has a plan. What about religiously? Um, Islam, and I love Arabs and God love Arabs. I'm not against Muslims. Uh, Muslims believe parts of the Bible. I don't know if you know that. They believe it's corrupt. They believe the Jews corrupted the Old Testament. They believe the Christians corrupted the New Testament. But there are certain parts they believe. Um, one imam, Kab el-Abhar, believes that Revelation 6, 1 and 2 is the Mahadi, the imam, Messiah, leader, who Israel believes is coming. And by the way, the Iranians believe this more than all the Arab nations. They believe a Mahadi is coming, a Messiah who will set up an Islamic state when he comes. They are looking for their Messiah. They believe this rider is in Revelation 6.2. I find the Mahadi, Kab al-Abhar said, referred in the book of the prophets and in the book of Revelation. This world leader. Now, we've had world leaders before. Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, we can go on and on. And we look at these people and we think, well, these people were evil. And obviously they were propped up by Satan. And, and what you need to understand is this, this leader has wanted to rise through history. The, the, the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is holding this person back. The woman's wanted to ride the beast for a long, long time. Politics and religion have been together for a time, trying to bring this scenario against God and his plan. And of course, God's restraining it. Hitler's our latest example. When you look at Hitler as an evil person and you look at the black and white pictures, you think he's evil. What you have to understand is he convinced a Christian nation, a Christian nation, that the final solution was mandatory. Now, there were wonderful people who housed Jews, and I'm not debating that. I'm just saying that was a Christian nation. The interesting thing about Hitler, and this is why God laughs, is he almost got away with it. There's three movies you should all watch. Dunkirk, The Finest Hour, and the movie about the encryption, uh, breaking the encryption machine that the Germans had. When you put those three movies together, you see what odds the rest of the world was against to stop this man. It almost happened. But here's the irony. Hitler's final solution helped create the nation of Israel, which we need for a final scenario. He was soft on the Russians, which led to the rise of the Soviet Empire, which next week we read Ezekiel 37, 38, Russia comes down into Israel. So Hitler's whole scheme set up Bible prophecy. God raises up kings, and he brings them low. No Jew would have ever thought God would use Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylon 
to take them into captivity. No one ever thought Greece would be a world power. No one ever heard of Rome when Babylon was in power. God raises up kings, he brings them low. Deception will be the name of the game for Israel and the rest of the world, and we're seeing the precursor. We're seeing the highlights. These white horse riders, this is the trailer. When we get in the book of Revelation, we're gonna see the details. But this deception is already happening. Deception at any level is horrific. You know, you go to buy a car and the guy's deceiving you about the engine and all. It's terrible, right? We, children are deceived. Politicians deceive us. The world is scheduled to be deceived. Satan is conquering and going out to conquer and conquering. That's not the work of God. God is not trying to conquer anything or anybody. He already has the title deed to the earth. What he's doing is compelling us to come in. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor Bob, you just told us there was a blessing by reading the book of Revelation. And to be honest, I don't see a blessing here. In fact, I'm quite depressed. <laughs> so if you want to know where the blessing is, I read these chapters and I realize churches don't preach on this, people don't read it. But I am convinced every page of Scripture was written for a reason and a purpose. Every page. You know, God just didn't give us the Psalms and the Proverbs. He didn't give us the nice stories about lepers being healed. Every page of Scripture has something for us. And I got to tell you, when I read this, it makes me want to double down on my calling, double down on my leadership, double down on this church's involvement in evangelism. I was thinking about what Jesus said of the days of Noah. We know from Hebrews that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, get this, for 100 years. So Noah got up every day and he took his hammer and his Bible and he hammered and he preached. Do you ever wonder what he preached about? Did he preach financial peace? How to have a great marriage? 21 steps of leadership? What did he preach? I don't think any of that would have worked, by the way. You know, being out of debt and having a great marriage and raising godly kids 20 minutes before the doors of the ark closed, I don't think would have helped anybody, okay? Do you know what I think Noah preached? Grace. Because the scripture says Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God was tired and, you know, he had made man, he was going to judge the earth, and Noah found grace. You know how I know he preached grace? Because for 100 years, the doors of the ark were open. For 100 years, anyone could have gone in. And then one day, God said, Noah, come into the ark. That meant God was in the ark. And then God closed from the inside the doors, and judgment came. Moses preached, just put blood on the doorposts. Jeremiah preached for years that Israel would be invaded. These were all preachers of grace, warning the world of the judgment to come. Judgment is God's strange work. What he longs to do is how fellowship with human beings created in his image. But see, the funny thing about God is the same ability God gave us, the ability to create, the ability to think, you know, that's where the world's moving. You know, all those ideas, the, the wonderful things God has given us, you know, we're, we're, we're rebuilding Babel. 
is what we're doing. Remember God looked down at Babel and said there's nothing that they're conspiring to do that will be withheld from them and God confused their language? Well, we've unconfused language. And we've rebuilt Babel and there's nothing that's going to stop man from getting to this golden age. The problem is they're getting there without God. Technology is a wonderful thing. Having all these devices is great. If, if the world was, if we stopped cancer, that'd be wonderful. But to do it with all without God is to lead people into destruction. Because if we were only material, that stuff would work. But with all the gains we've made in technology and finances and resources and an overclass and all this stuff that we have, no one's any more happier. People still have anxiety. People are still depressed. People are still struggling. Um, because we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And we are not only physical and material, we are spiritual. And there is a craving and there's a hunger. And people are yearning for something more and they're looking for the God that created them. But they're looking in all the wrong places. And so many people are having an existential crisis and none of these things can the world fulfill. Man needs God. And we live in the age of grace. And for 2,000 years, there's been an ark where if anybody bows the knee, calls in the name of Christ, Peter said the first sermon ever preached shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord from this day, Pentecost, till the sun goes out and the moon turns to blood, whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's an ark in America. There's preachers on TV. There's preachers on radio. You guys go into all the world. We tell people over and over again, there is an ark. There is grace. I went back and read Matthew 24. At the end of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, he gives a parable about ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. They took their lamps and they went out and the bridegroom delayed his coming. When he delayed his coming, they fell asleep. When they saw him coming, the wise ones brought oil. They lit their lamps. The ones that were foolish had no oil for their lamps. But reading it this last time, I was woken up to something that they all fell asleep. The wise and the foolish both fell asleep when the master delayed his coming. Was the church asleep when Hitler was rising in Germany? Probably. Is the church asleep in parts of the world today? Probably. Is prosperity the cause of our sleep? Probably. And when I looked at that, I thought, Lord, I want to finish the way I started. When I started, I was small in my own eyes. Remember Samuel said that to Saul? Saul, when you started, when God made you the king, you were small in your own eyes. I read this, and I'm like, God, I want to be small in my own eyes. You don't need Bob Gaglione. Never needed him for 2,000 years. You certainly don't need him now. But God, as I live my days, what can I do? Why am I here? Why have you left me here? When I got saved, when I became a Christian, you know, I wanted to be ready. That's what to be watchful means. That means you're ready. It doesn't mean you're walking around with a sandwich board, Jesus is coming, or putting tracks in people's sandwiches. That's not what it means. It means you're in a state of readiness. 
that you have a wartime mentality in peacetime. That in a moment's notice, you could drop everything you're doing and do what God's called you to do. If you weren't here at our 30th anniversary, I shared a Barna report that most Christians have not shared Christ with anyone outside of their family in the last 10 years. And then I also shared that most of the evangelism in the church is done by people saved five years and less. Someone wrote me and said, can I have that research? I'm alarmed by that. And I'm like, you should be alarmed, because we're asleep. And I don't know where we are, but I'll tell you this. 1983, when I became a Christian, the gentleman who led me to Christ showed me a barse code on a pack of Wrigley's gum and on cereal and said, one day they're going to check you out at the supermarket like this. And I'm like, wow. Today, we can't even talk about that stuff anymore. It's all here. I know this. We're closer than we've ever been. And I know, I know preachers have said that for a long time, but the preachers that said it never had Israel in the land, never had Jerusalem as a cup of trembling. Think of this election, right? Moving the capital of Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, in the news, cup of trembling. Never had this kind of technology. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, everything Jesus talked about is here. What we've slid over is the deception. Deception's coming. I share a lot, I'm bullish on the church. Um, I get to travel. I've seen churches, mainly younger churches in Nashville. I was just in LA, Arizona, I go to New York, DC. I'm very bullish on the next generation, but very concerned. Because when I go to these churches, they might pull a scripture from here and there and here and there. I saw a sign on a church that said, no judgment, only love here. And I thought, oh, yeah, I get that, right? Like, we're not going to judge you. We're going to love you. I, that's good. But that's not the Bible. The Bible's not all about love and no judgment. In fact, I, I turn the pages. Acts, the epistles, right? You can read about two chapters before you hit the second coming the end of the world, and judgment. And yet people are like, oh, don't preach any of that stuff. Is the church asleep? Is it soft? I don't know. It's God's church. He's in the midst of the candle sticks. The judge of all the earth will do right. But I know this. Christians have to wake up. And we have to occupy till he comes. And, you know, Pat Genslinger at his work said, what can we do? He said, number one, be the best worker. Because if you're the best worker at your company, that, people will listen to you. If you're sloughing off and then tell people about Christ, they're not going to listen to you. So I understand. We occupy until he comes. Martin Luther said if Jesus was coming today, he'd plant a garden. I get all that. But these pages make me look and say, oh my gosh, this is the closest anybody's ever been. We could be a day, a week, five years, 50 years, like Noah, we don't know where it is. We just hammer and the Bible. Hammer and the Bible. For you, it might be a stethoscope and the Bible. It might be a microchip and the Bible. It might be a computer and the Bible. It might be a soccer ball and a Bible. How will they hear if they don't hear from the feet of people 
who bring good news. You and I are God's mouthpiece. And the doors of the ark are wide open. You're going to hear more about evangelism in this coming year than you've ever heard in any church you've ever been in. We'll make you real uncomfortable about not inviting people and telling them about Christ. And we're excited about what God will do.